Champions Mojo is part of the CG Sports Network. I became a doctor and I said, well, I'm a doctor now, you know, life is going to be great until you get that patient that says, I don't want you as my doctor. I want the white doctor. You know, I want the male doctor. And then you go, well, what happened here? I, I've, I've got this title, I've got all of this, and all you still see is, you know, here. And so I had to learn how to deal with that over time. And that is still one of my obstacles. And that's why I, I, I've just decided now that I'm me. I am me. I, I can't change who me is. And I'm going to go with that. And that's why I use humor a lot, because I share that when patients sort of, you know, I have patients that will say, um, I didn't know an anesthesiologist was a doctor. And I'll go, <laughs> I'm not a doctor? <laughs> really? I didn't know that. Maria, you and I have recently learned about a new top 10 app being used by our friends and Olympic champions, Elizabeth Beisel, Carolyn Joyce, and Maggie Steven. And that's the indie app and they are the sponsor of today's show. Yep. India allows athletes, thought leaders, and everyday experts in any field to earn extra income by sharing their knowledge. With the Indie app, anyone can easily create lessons, they can make product recommendations, or create personalized content, which they can then post for people interested in what they know. I love this app, Kelly, because it allows anyone with know-how to earn income, even without a huge social media following. And it's easy to get started. Download the Indie app, upload your content, set a price, and share. Go to Indie.com, that's I-N-D-I.com, or find Indie in the Apple or Google Play Store and cash in on your passions today. Welcome to Champions Mojo, a podcast to bring out your inner champion. Your hosts are sisters-in-law, Kelly Palace and Maria Parker. Kelly is a former Division I head swim coach, Olympic trials qualifier, and holds national and world records in master swimming. Maria holds world records in endurance cycling and won the world's toughest bike race, Race Across America. Both are certified health and life coaches. Our goal is to inspire you through conversations with champions. And now your host, Kelly Palace. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Champions Mojo podcast, where, as usual, I am co-hosting with Maria Parker. Hello, Maria. Hi, Kelly. It's good to be here today. And Maria, before we give our guest a full introduction, we just want to say hi and welcome her to the show as she's sitting there with us. Dr. Lynette Charity, welcome to Champions Mojo. Yes, welcome, Dr. Lynette Charity. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, I am so excited because today we are going to get some great advice and hear some inspiring stories and learn how we can use humor to reach our peak performance. That's right. As we said, our guest today is Dr. Lynette Charity, a medical doctor and an expert and board certified in anesthesiology with over 40 years of experience at putting people to sleep. She's also a keynote speaker, humorous, and author. In aspiring to become a doctor, she met many dream smashers, people who wanted to squish, squash, and stomp on her dream. Maria Lynette has overcome so many obstacles in her life. Can you give us a little background on that? Sure, Kelly. As a young girl growing up in the segregated South, Lynette was told, 
no medical school is going to accept a colored girl. Those are her words. She persevered and now wants to wake people up <laughs> to go after their dreams. Love that. Through sharing her story of overcoming obstacles of racial bias, gender bias, and age bias. Among other things, she's going to talk with us about using humor to deal with the pressure to perform at our best. Dr. Lynette, welcome again to Champions Mojo. Thank you. Thank you again. Well, we are just so excited to hear uh, what your life has been like and, and how this is. I'm so inspired just reading your bio. So let's go into that uh, first thing that we alluded to in your intro. So you're, you're a medical doctor. You've obviously accomplished so much being an anesthesiologist. Um, after you, you grew up in this uh, racially segregated South and, and you were told again in your own words that uh, the medical schools would never accept a colored girl. Tell us about that. All right, so uh, just to put some background on this, I am 68 years old, so I was born in 1952. It was two years before the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education integrated schools. And I grew up in Virginia and I wanted to get uh, a better education because of the fact that I had this dream of becoming a doctor. And I got that dream. Well, I was gonna, hoping you would tell that story. I love it. <laughs> I, I, was, uh, I got that dream because I was uh, in 1961, I was watching a TV show. And some of you may know about that show. Some of you don't. I'm dating myself. But it was called Ben Casey. Ben Casey came on on my black and white 19-inch Philco TV, first TV we ever had in our house. And as he came on and he looked at me, and I looked at him and he said, Lynette, you're going to be a doctor. And I actually, I, that's what I thought I heard him say. I even told, told my mom, I said, Mama, I'm going to be a doctor. She goes, that's fine, child. That's fine. Child. <laughs> but she went out and uh, two weeks later bought me a nice little medical kit. And I went around giving shots to all of my friends. But that was the inspiration for me because growing up, there was no real direction for me. And I had tragedy in my life with the fact that when I was six years old, my two -year, then two-year-old sister was hit by a car and killed mm. in front of me. And I didn't know what to do. I was only six years old. But when that happened to me with Ben Casey, it was like, maybe, just maybe, if I become a doctor, I can save someone like my sister in the mm. future. So that's what I did. And then I ended up getting into a, um, a recently integrated uh, white high school and I had to go through the neighborhood. I lived in a segregated neighborhood. I tell people I had colored friends, I went to a colored school and I had, we had colored neighbors. Okay, so there, that's where I was. And then they said, okay, you can go. My mom didn't want me to go to the school because in 1957, just 10 years before I went, there was something called the Little Rock Nine. Maybe some of you have heard of that. Little Rock, Arkansas, nine colored kids. And I use the terminology because it's important to know how we traveled from being Negro to colored to black to African-American. So nine colored kids went to this white high school, integrated it, and they had to call in the National Guard. Uh, one of the girls was pushed down some stairs 
And my mom was so afraid that that would happen to me that she said, no, you can't go. So I did what any self-respecting, you know, kid would do. I forged her signature. <laughs> and uh, when she found out, she was upset, but she said, it's, it just seems like you really want to go. And I said, yes, I do, because they've got better books, mom. We always got the hand-me-downs, so I wanted to go there. The only problem was that I had to go through the white neighborhood. I could see the white neighborhood from my neighborhood, but I had never been through the white neighborhood. And when I share this story with people, I say to them, because I did share this in, of all places, poor Malaysia, and they didn't know a lot about segregation or the history of that in America. So I told them, imagine the Wizard of Oz, and I'm Dorothy, and I'm going through the haunted forest. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my. Mm -hmm. Now, I was worried about getting pushed down some stairs at the school. I never realized that this neighborhood would attack a 15-year-old walking through there, just going to school. But that's exactly what happened. The women came out and we call, I called them wicked witches because that's the way they acted. They called me names. They threw dog poop at me. They, uh, they told me to go back to Africa. And I kept thinking to myself, how can I go back to a place that I've never been before? But okay. But the point is that I made it. And when I shared this with someone, they said, well, how long did you have to do that? And it was about a week. But let me tell you, I was never an athlete per se, but I became a sprinter for that week. <laughs> and I would, I would change my route. I would go at different times. But I made it to the school because that was my ticket to my future, to my calling. And I got there. I was a straight A student. I was a member of the National Honor Society. I volunteered for everything. And I did do the 60-yard dash, if you guys remember that from back then. <laughs> That's my athletic part. I was mostly the pep team. But the point is that anything I could do to prove to them that I could do the work because that was the most important thing is their perception of who I was, was based on the color of my skin and not the content of my character. Mm -hmm. And so once they saw that, I actually had a great mentor. My chemistry teacher at that school said, science is the equalizer. Doesn't matter what color you are. And she became my mentor and helped me. But then it was time to apply to college. Now, I didn't have any role models. I didn't know what to do. So I went to someone that I thought would help me, which was my guidance counselor. Aren't those the people that are supposed to guide you to your future? Well, my guidance counselor, I walk in and I said, I really need you to help me to apply to college. Lynette, that's what she called me. We lived in the South. Why on earth do you want to go to college? Well, I want to go to college because I want to go to medical school one day. College? Medical school? Now, one of those Negro schools might accept you, but no medical school is going to accept a colored girl. And literally, she would not help me. But when one door closes, another door opens. I was in distress. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to apply to college. Lo and behold, I come home that day my mom meets me at the door and says, Lynette, Lynette, there's this lady that called from this woman's college. 
up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. She wants you to come up there and interview. But I told her, we don't have any money. So she's going to send you a bus ticket. <laughs> she sent me a bus ticket. And I took a 20-hour bus ride to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, to Chatham College for Women, all by myself at the age of 17. This is when I guess travel was pretty safe. She met me. I interviewed. I returned home with a four-year academic scholarship and my acceptance letter. And wow. you can imagine how it was when I went back to school, because this was my, at the end of my junior year. My senior year, I walked around with that letter and <laughs> made sure the guidance counselor saw it as much as possible. And so that's, that's that story is that- How did uh, they find out about you at Chatham College? You know, people asked that question. And back then, they used to buy lists because you have to understand it was affirmative action time, trying to find people that could, you know, to give them an opportunity. I would have never had that opportunity, I feel, if it hadn't been for affirmative action and the fact that colleges and other places were looking for minorities to, to yes, it was a quota system, but you still had to do the work. As I said, I did great on my SATs. I was a, a straight A student. All of that, I must have popped up on her list. Because when I got there, she just said, uh, well, I heard about you and uh, I wanted to meet you. Nice. And and there you have it. So So so, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So what kept you going? Like what, what was obviously this, if this wasn't the biggest obstacle in your life, um, we'd like to hear what is, but I would imagine this was a pretty big obstacle to get over this preconceived notion um, about women not being doctors and certainly, you know, colored girl, as you were called. Um, how did you get through this? What, what was your daily self-talk or mindset? How did, how, how did you, you know, thrive? During that period of time, maybe you guys would know about the fact that there was something called the World Book Encyclopedia and Encyclopedia Britannica, all of that. And I love to read. And I tell people all the time, I had no time for this nonsense because I was hanging out with Heidi in the Swiss Alps or (laughs) I was in the Green Gables with Anne. Mm -hmm. I I love to read. I lived in that imaginary world. And it really kept me going because I knew that there was another world outside of where I was. And I wanted to find it and I wanted to be a part of it. And I could not allow the situation that I was in to just sort of negate the fact that opportunities were there, but you had to go looking for them. They didn't come to you. You had to go looking for them. And that's what I did. Every time there was an opportunity, I just went through that door and said, let me give this a shot and see. That's great. I I love that. That's great advice. (laughs) So you've had you know, it, in telling your story, it sounds like you were very, uh, knew who you were, you know, enough to say, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this regardless of the people who are trying to stomp your dreams. And, uh, you know, I know you've read your, I've read your bio. So I know that you went on, you went to medical school, you became an anesthesiologist, but you've had some other obstacles since, um, and not necessarily external. Can you talk a little bit about those? Well, uh, 
I like to share what I speak on now is physician burnout, depression, and suicide. And I speak on it because uh, a memory came back when one of my colleagues died by suicide a few years ago. Hmm. And I remembered my story of that. I have suffered with depression. One thing you, can un you have to understand is a trauma like seeing your sister get hit by a car uh, leaves a lasting impression. And back then they didn't have grief counseling. All they did was they comforted the adults, but the kids, they just sent us to our room. My two brothers and I, we witnessed this horrific accident and we're just sent to our room. And it didn't dawn on me until I actually saw my sister in her coffin that Beverly was not coming back. I even made her my imaginary friend because we were so close back then for at least two years of her life. But one thing that happened to me was that I became an angry, frustrated child and I didn't understand why I was that way. And so over the course of my life, I've had these periods where I have gone, I call it to the dark place. I've gone to the dark place because of the fact that things hit me, life always hits you. And I was always, you know, I became a doctor and I said, well, I'm a doctor now, you know, life is going to be great until you get that patient that says, I don't want you as my doctor. I want the white doctor. You know, I want the male doctor. And then you go, well, what happened here? I, I've, I've got this title. I've got all of this. And all you still see is, you know, here. And so I had to learn how to deal with that over time. And that is still one of my obstacles. And that's why I, I, I've just decided now that I'm me. I am me. I, I can't change who me is. And I'm going to go with that. And that's why I use humor a lot, because I share that when patients sort of, you know, I have patients that will say, um, I didn't know an anesthesiologist was a doctor. And I'll go, <laughs> I'm not a doctor? <laughs> really? I didn't know that. You know, I just sort of, you know, just go with it. Go with it. I don't get upset about it. The nurses will say, Dr. Charity, they say this to you all the time. Why don't you explain it to them? And I tell them, you can't fix stupid. And there's only so many people you can educate. But the most important thing is that I show them by doing. I say, listen, you're stuck with me. Tell me about it after I wake you up if you think I'm really good or not. And I, I've never had a problem. They wake up and they go, this is the best anesthetic I've ever had. You're so wonderful. And you're funny. Because <laughs> I, I tell jokes. I First thing I do is I say, hi, I'm Dr. Charity. I'm your anesthesiologist. That's right. People pay me to pass gas. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets them. And they will say at the end, they said, you know what? I came in. I was so afraid. I wasn't sure about what's going on. And you just took that away and made, you know, you made it funny for you. You made it relaxing for me. And thank you so much. We, we read that that you refer to this side of yourself as laughing Lynette, but she hasn't always been there. No, laughing Lynette hasn't always been there. It, it, uh, six years ago, no, now it's been eight years ago. Um, I had a, I was, I was 60 years old and I had a, um, I call it a crisis of consciousness where, uh, as you know, healthcare is changing and I had been in it for, you know, 30 some years at that point. But 
we had a lot of things that were going on that as a 60-year-old, some things I could adapt to, some things I couldn't. So I was trying to decide, you know, I, I was tired of some of the jokes, some of the innuendos about me, even at that age mm-hmm. and that experience of still being inferior to other physicians because I was an anesthesiologist. And I said, you know, I just don't know if I can take this anymore. So what I ended up doing was, um, uh, first I got fired from a job because I ended up, uh, I had been on call. Uh, Back then we did call where we did 24 hour call and I was doing two days of 24 hour call. And at one point in my second day, I just said, I can't do another case. I don't feel comfortable. I can't do it. Well, that's not how it works here, Dr. Charity. You're on call. You have to do it. I said, I don't feel safe. You're going to have to call in someone else. Well, I got called into the principal's office regarding that because I actually walked out of the hospital and I got stopped by the police that day for... He thought I had been drinking, but it's something called drowsy driving. I was just exhausted. What ended up happening is that when I went back to work, I was told that I was not a team player and I ended up calling the chief an idiot and I got fired. Mm -hmm. And, And in that moment of clarity, I said, this is the best thing that could have happened to me because I was on the fence of what should I do? And I decided I wanted to be a stand up comic at that moment. Not to give up my day job yet. I ended up getting another job, which was fine, you know, but I decided that I needed to do something for my mental health, my physical health, my emotional health, just for fun, just to have some fun. We as physicians, we, we are so serious all the time. I call it that white coat persona where we always have to be on, you know, when people, yes, I'm a doctor, uh, you know, we're doing that when, when just be yourself. And once I let my guard down and I took off that white coat, I would walk into the, the hospital with a smile on my face and, you know, I could do the job, but I was going to make it fun, as fun as I could make it. So I would just crack people up. That's, that's what I did. And I had the situation where I was doing comedy. I was doing open mics. And I did this one open mic and I did my set and everything after a couple of, uh, you know, glasses of wine. For <laughs> and a couple of days later, I go back to work and they roll a patient in and I go, hi, I'm Dr. Charity, your anesthesiologist. He goes, I know who you are. And I go, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, did I give him a bad anesthetic? <laughs> did I mess up some of his family members? Is he going to sue me? He goes, weren't you at the comedy club the other night? (laughs) You are a real doctor. I go, why? Yes, I am. Just ask the surgeon. And the surgeon goes, I don't know this lady. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. He's a comic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I go, come on, tell him. Yeah. Yeah. She's very good. Well, you are funny, but I hope you're a better anesthesiologist than you are a comedian. Kind of. (laughs) And that, with that, I shot in some propofol. He went up. <laughs> when he woke up, though, he told the whole post-op area that, you know, Dr. Charity is awesome. Of course, it was the propofol speaking, but she's awesome and she's funny. And you have to go see her at the comedy club because she's really good. 
And so um, after that, it was like, hey, I can do no wrong. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm good. I'm happy. I'm good. How can, how can the rest of us use comedy when we're, how can the rest of us wake up our laughing Maria or laughing Kelly or laughing whomever? You know, a lot of people think that uh, in order to laugh, you, you have to say something funny. But believe it or not, there, there, there's something called laughter yoga. Have you ever heard of that? Where, you know, we talk about the fact that we uh, dance like nobody is watching. There's no reason why not to laugh. I tell people laughter truly is the best medicine. You know, you, you sit here sometimes and all of a sudden you'll remember something and some people will suppress that. I will laugh out loud. I was just with my grandson and we were rolling around on the floor and he bopped me in the eye. And then he comes over and he goes, it's okay, Nana, it's okay, Nana. And I'm cracking up, I'm cracking up. But for most people, the important thing is that laughter will elevate your mood because it released. Now, you know about this, Maria. You know about endorphins, Maria. You, you, oh, both of you know about those. Those are those mood elevating hormones. And people think that they have to exercise. You know, I used to run marathons just like you. And I tell people a marathon was an amazing place to go because it's amazing how many people you can cuss out in 26.2 miles. <laughs> That's true. You know, you start out, you may have something on your mind and you're running and then about a mile 11, all of a sudden those endorphins are kicking in and you can run another 11 miles. And you think about someone that said something bad to you and you just say something about it. And then you laugh a little bit and you laugh a little bit and you keep going and you keep going. Laughter, you can lose calories, you know, a good guffaw, you get about 40 calories after, out of that. <laughs> you know, you just laugh. And it's hard to be depressed if you're rolling around on the floor laughing your gluteus maximus off. <laughs> and a person of my age rolling around on the floor doing that and occasionally losing bladder and bowel function. <laughs> <laughs> you see? You see? Oh, I can relate. Yeah. <laughs> That's beautiful. So in today's society, it seems like people are taking everything so seriously. What are your thoughts on just lightening up, Francis, as they say in stripes? That's one of my favorite quotes. And I always say that to my husband, lighten up, Francis. So yeah. what, what are your thoughts on how we can lighten up? In the beginning of, of the pandemic, I, was, I spoke a lot on mental health, surviving and thriving in COVID. And the one thing is that, yes, our routines have been disrupted. Our lives have been disrupted. You know, you can't go to your gym. You can't go to, you know, I was getting massages every week. You know, I was going to do my Bikram's yoga. You know, there are a lot of things that my, my routine was disrupted. So I live in Arizona. And I told people, I can't go to Bikram yoga in a studio. I can do Bikram yoga in 110 degrees right in my backyard. <laughs> There's no reason why I can't do that if it makes me feel good. And my massages, I went out and bought these foam rollers. And so I would just sort of get on my foam rollers and roll around on that. You know, I, I just laugh every time I, you know, it, so, things just crack me up now. Everything cracks me up. But it's the important thing is that I tell people that don't dwell on the negativity. That's not where we are. Find your funny. 
find your funny in everyday life because there, it's out there. It is out there. And every place I go now, mask on, social distancing, I make it a point to just say, how you doing? How things going? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for bagging my groceries. You know, thank you for helping me. Let people know you can still be connected. I have worn a mask for 12 hours a day, five days to seven days a week, most of my adult life. Being frustrated about wearing a mask because you don't think people can see your face, you know, take it down, smile, put it back up, and then tell them a joke. Just be happy. You know, happiness, joy, laughter. You know, this is life, you know, and it's the only one you have. So make the most of it. Right? That's, yes, that's great. Great stuff. So you're, you're full of such wisdom and you have so, so many great life experiences. How can, how can we, just our listeners, if they're out there, they're trying not to be biased, but maybe they were raised Fortunately, I was raised by parents that didn't see color, you know, didn't see uh, those things. But and, and, and I have a gay brother who was welcomed into our, you know, like just completely welcomed by my parents. And um, so my parents were great at just love is love. And, you know, so anyway, what, how can we improve? Well, you know, it's, it's a hard question because. It, it happens on both sides, just to let you know. My parents, because of just the fact that they lived through more of that when they did have colored fountains and everything was truly, truly segregated, that they were very, very afraid. And they personally did not like white people. And like you, my first big crush was on a guy named Paul. I did this at one of the, uh, I do the moths, I do storytelling. So I told them about Paul, and Paul was at that high school. We were science nerds, you know, bookworms, whatever you want to call that. We did everything together. But then Paul thought he could take me home to his house to do homework together, and we did. And I was met by his mother at the door, and she nipped it in the butt, let's just say that. And as you said, one thing that happened with that, that situation is that Paul and I had not, color was not an issue. It was science. We just loved it. And we loved that. We loved science and all of that. But when he came back to school, all of a sudden, our relationship totally changed and he didn't want to have anything to do with me. And I'm sure that his parents had read in the riot act kind of thing, mm-hmm. that you can't have that. But it happens... I am married to a white man. I tell people all the time, and, and this is what I got when I, I met my husband when I was an intern, and I'm walking down the hall of the hospital, and I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm never going to marry. I'm never going to have kids because I have to focus on being a doctor. And all of a sudden, this guy walks out of this door. He's got curly, dark hair, hazel eyes. He's got on one black sock, one blue sock, <laughs> colorblind, you know, mustard stains on his tie. He's got calipers in his pocket. You know, I describe him because, and that was it. And so I asked the nurse, I said, who is that? He says, oh, that's Dr. Sato. He's going to be your senior resident. Does he have a girlfriend? <laughs> one year later, 
we were married. Wow. And we've been now married for 41 years. Oh, congratulations. Oh, that's so wonderful. But the key thing is that when we decided to get married, my father was deceased at the time, but my mother sat us down and my two older, actually my two older brothers and my younger brother sat us down and said it wasn't going to work, that people would not be accepting. This was 1978. Mm. It was, uh, we got married in 1979. It was 10 years after the Lovings. I don't know if you know that story, but the Lovings were an interracial couple in Virginia that could not, they were married, but could not be married because it was actually illegal in that time for an interracial couple to be married. So what great, year was that? 1969 wow. in Virginia, 10 years before I got married. And uh, it was a great story. Their story is a wonderful story, but if they had not done that and the Supreme Court decided that you could marry anybody you wanted to at that time, my husband and I wouldn't have been, we got married in Virginia because that's where my family's from. Uh, we filled out my church, Queen Street Baptist Church. If you needed anything done, an operation, or you know, you needed some medicine, you needed to come on that Saturday to Queen Street Baptist Church. We had 400 people, doctors, you know, nurses, all of our close friends. But my brothers told me, you can't marry him. You can't marry him because, you know, what about, think about your children. Think about your children, how they're going. My son works for Google. There's nothing wrong with my son. Yeah. My daughter's a social worker. They're beautiful. They're blended. And I had my DNA tested. I'm English, Irish, African-American. And they have a little Arab in them because my husband is Middle Eastern. Uh, he's, he's Turkish, Lebanese. So they're just all over the place. And this is, this is what we need to, to realize is that this is okay. We need, as, as Martin Luther King has always said, you know, it's that content of your character. They're ugly people of, of all colors mm. and all walks of life. So we have to just get rid of that. My impression of both of you are that you are two wonderful, accomplished women. I'm not looking at your color. I'm not looking, I read your bios just to let you know. <laughs> and you two are awesome. And you've broken records too. You have gone on to prove that we can do anything we want, right? And that's what these young men and women need to know is that, especially women. I still remember when I was pregnant with my first child during my, my residency and uh, I went into preterm labor. Mm. And someone said, you know, how did this happen? You know, what are we going to do? Who's going to cover your shifts? You know, that kind of a thing. Why in the world is it that women are going into medicine? All y'all want to do is get have babies anyway. And it's like, wait a minute. Up until that point, I was doing my call. I was seeing my patients. I was in the operating room, even though back then there was a question as to whether you know, giving anesthesia and, and, and inhaling the fumes and all of that, the things that we, we use in anesthesia might be detrimental to my baby. Mm. But I did my job. I did what I need to do. But, you know, I was always trying to have my babies too early. And, but that's, mm. the, that's the thing that we had. I tell people you have to be too good for it to matter. Right. You just go out there and do your job. 
Just I do love it. that. No excuses. No excuses. Just do it. I love that. You're going to yeah. come up against obstacles because of the way you look or because of your gender or because of your personality or your hair color or, or other things. But yeah, just do your job. Be too good. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's the most important thing. I practiced in, uh, for a little bit of time in the Middle East and Dubai. And um, it was so funny because we came back home and then we wanted to go back. And they said, uh, you can't come back. And I go, why? They said, because you're too old. <laughs> oh, so there you go. So it was like, okay. That's, that's the next challenge. You got to be too good well, for that. Yeah, Dr. Lynette, you're perfect for us because we've recently gone from just audio to video. And this is about our, I guess it's about our fourth video. And I, I said, I don't want to do video. Uh, I, I'm too old. I don't want, people don't want to look at a 58 year old woman like me. And so, but you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get over it and say, you know, everybody's going to be 58 one day. Hopefully we are role modeling being on camera at 58 because YouTube <laughs> is full of a bunch of young, beautiful people. People on YouTube are young and beautiful. And so anyway, I think yeah. that is, that is fabulous. And you, you know, this, this show is champions mojo, okay. which is the magic, yeah. the, you know, your secret sauce and you are an obvious champion and we love to hear what routines or rituals, things that you have done throughout your life that have helped you achieve these great successes? Well, I think the most important thing is the fact that I have never listened to the naysayers. I don't have time for them. And it's amazing how you can be going through life doing whatever you do, and one person can say something just one negative thing, you know, what's wrong with your hair? What did you do with your hair? (laughs) And then all of a sudden, all of the positivity, you're deflated. Drains out. (laughs) So true. Yeah. And it's like, why? Why? So what do you do with that? What do you do with those negative feelings that come up when you have a naysayer? You're deliberate. Water on a duck's back. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I had someone say to me, uh, I, I'm trying to think of the story. Uh, I used to wear a weave. I don't know if you guys know what that is. But, but you know, when you see Beyonce and you see yeah. some people with all, one minute they have one hairstyle, the next thing you go, how in the world they do so that? So wonderful. Art on your head. I love it. <laughs> yeah. 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 So that, you know, so I used to do that because I traveled a lot out of the country and I didn't want to have to take care of my hair. But I was in Vietnam, uh, and one of the pieces of my weave kind of came loose, and it was kind of hanging. So my, my husband only had a pair of nail clippers, and so <laughs> he, he cut the strand, and we pulled it out. We scared the people there because they thought my hair was falling out. <laughs> but the point is that at that point, I said, this is not me. This is not me. I'm doing this for someone who said that I needed to have straight hair, that I, that, cause I used to wear a big fro. And then someone said, well, you can't be a doctor with a big fro. You really have to relax your hair because your patients are going to look at you and think you're Angela Davis. Not to say that I would, didn't want to be Angela Davis. Yeah. The point is though, that that perception that all of a sudden now I'm militant or something because of my hair. 
and, and that's why I've gone back to this. And I said, you know, I need to be me. And most importantly, everyone this just needs to be their authentic, authentic them. That's it. Be authentic. This is who I am. Warts and all. And if you don't like it, you can lump it. So if <laughs> I, I, love I, that. I, I like that too, but you know, just, just to be honest and fair, it's hard not to be impacted when somebody says you can't do that. Or, I mean, I, I, it seems to me that, that the real trick is you're saying, no, I'm not going there. I'm not going to, I'm not going to allow those negative feelings that I'm experiencing because of the negative thing you said to change who I am or what I want to do is, you know, I, I guess I'd like you to talk about that because I think, you know, it's not that you didn't feel them, is it? No, no, no. And, and sometimes even as I've gotten older, when people will say things like that, like now, I, I just recently retired from clinical medicine uh, and uh, just before COVID because I was going to continue with my keynote speaking. And someone said, oh, well, how does it feel not to be a doctor again? I mean, how, how does it feel not to be a doctor? You're still a doctor. And I go, <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you're, you're not practicing, so you're no longer a doctor. So I, I actually carry my, my diploma just in case, because people have asked me this lately. And I go, you see this? And actually, it's right behind me here on the wall. I said, you see this? I will always be a doctor. Okay? Always. <laughs> always. Can't take that away. Yeah. You can't yeah. take that away. But this is what people, you know, retirement is one thing. But I, I've just retired from clinical medicine. and that. But you, you're right. It's, it's hard because young people today... They, they want to have 5,000 friends. They want to have all of this. And I tell people that you just need a couple of friends. You just need some good people in your life. You need your peeps. You need people that will take you for who you are and you can trust in their judgment. And, and you, it, you, you can't, we have kids today that are young that are dying by suicide because of something that happened on social media. Mm. And we need to teach them that they are not your friends and that right. you need to find other friends. You need to find role models. I've always had role models. I have coaches. You know, I have people in my circle that say, you're doing okay, Lynette. You know, it's, it's all right. You know, just get rid of that. And I use all of that in my comedy. You know, when people say things to me, I, I just write comedy behind it's it. It's new material. Thank you so it's much. For that. <laughs> it's all new material. And I'm, I'm, I'm writing some comedy now because I, I don't have fun when I do it uh, virtually. But uh, our comedy club just opened up with limited. Oh. I said, you know, I'm just going to have everybody way because I'm a woman of a certain age. So way <laughs> in the back of the room. And, and when I stand on stage, I'll start out with my mask and then I'll take it off. But they have to be way. <laughs> Obviously, one of the things that you display as a champion, you, you know, you, you let things roll off your back like water on a duck. And I also see how authentic you are. And uh, so other, other things that champions do. So you're authentic. You don't let things bother you when people naysay you, you use a coach, which we, we always try to, to ask people, you know, to say, if you want to be your best, like my husband's a really 
premier golfer and he's trying to go to the next level. I'm like, honey, you need a coach. So what other things do you think champions possess? Like what other qualities or things that, that our listeners need to do if they want to be at their best? You, you know, if you want to go for the goal, yeah, you've got, you, you know, you've got to work at it. It's not, some of us, people think all the time that when they see Beyonce or when they see somebody up on stage that they were like an overnight success where there's a great saying that says it took me 20 years to become an overnight success. The most important thing that I have done over the course of, you know, becoming a stand-up comic, becoming a physician, becoming anything is that I have made sure that I kept my eye on the prize and I worked at it. I made no excuses. I made no excuses. It's on me. No one can do it for me. I have to do it for myself. And if you are going to fall back on some sort of mentality that you are owed something in this world, it's not going to work. You've got to produce the goods. Mm. You've got to produce the goods. You have to show people that you have what it takes. And I didn't have all these skill sets at the beginning, but I've learned along the way because I've had people that have drilled it in me, helped me with it, pushed me past my fear. A lot of people have fear. And then they they self-talk themselves out of doing something that they might be good at. Because, oh, I'm not, you know, I could never be a stand-up comic. I'm too old, I'm too short, I'm too fat, I'm too green, I'm too brown, I'm too white. (laughs) You know, it's, but the thing is that get rid of that self-bad talk. You know, you, you, you know, the Downey Thomas is a lot of times, or the, you know, Debbie Downer is the person in your head mm-hmm. that tells you that, you know, you can't do something. Well, my coaches, they just slapped me around and said, you're doing this, mm-hmm. you're doing this. And the first time that I, you know, I was a physician for a lot, most of my life. The first time I did a keynote speech, I was shaking in my boots because I had never done that before. And, but the coaching and, and what you just did, your affirmation where you were doing this, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Amy Cuddy, you know, I mean, you know, your power stance, your, you know, being in the moment, you know, finding, you know, what, wherever you want to be. I have my little ritual before I go on where uh, I tell myself a joke. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. A ritual routine habit. That's great. Yeah. That's it. I tell myself a joke and I walk on and then I am in the moment. And uh, I, I just spoke at Google virtually. I spoke at Google, ladies. That's wow. amazing. That's amazing. Well, Congratulations. My, yes. my son works for Google. But the point is that uh, it, was a good, it was a good webinar. And um, I go, oh, my goodness, I'm talking to Google. You know, what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, all that Negativity. And once yeah. I got on, once I got on, and of course, once I saw my, my son's uh, picture when he popped up, that was even better. But uh, yeah, I just, I just went with it. I just had fun and got great feedback because I think it is that, you know, you, you, you have to be you, right? You have to be you. And I think that I suppressed that for a long time and now it's coming out in a flurry and I'm enjoying it. And it's keeping me young. <laughs> 
I wonder. I love it. Well, I wonder. I'm sorry. What's I just would love for you yeah. to comment on on you know this process of growing older. Has that helped you discover and and let you be you, or you know figure out who? You, I mean, or maybe just a little freedom. I'm just yeah. hey, you're a little ahead of us, so give us some advice. Yeah. All right. So so my mom, who she died a couple of years ago at 89, but uh, I used to take to the mall. love going to the mall. And she would sit in the mall and people would go by and she would do commentary on people. And I go, mom, you can't say that because she would be kind of loud or whatever and everything. She goes, I'm old. What are they going to do to me? What are they going to do to me? You know, and I've taken on her persona. And, I, you know, my, I, I grew up with two great grandmothers and my one grandmother, uh, when I would come home from school sometimes and she would, I would say, you know, they don't want to sit with me at the lunch camp, you know, the lunchroom and, you know, nobody wants to be my friend. And she goes, that's not why you're there. And listen, pay them no, never mind. And so I'm at, I'm at a point in my life where I pay no, I just don't pay them any, never mind. They can say whatever they want to say about me, you know, as, as, as uh, Kelly said, it, it has to roll at some point in time, you have to just say to yourself, you know, I don't care. I said what I said. I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm enjoying my life. I have no time for this because all that does is feed into a mentality that will bring you down, will bring your spirits down. And you don't want to go there. You don't want to be there. You want to be out there in the sunshine and enjoying life. You want to walk on clouds. You want to just, I go out, my, one of my routines is I get up in the morning, I go to my kitchen, I get my Newman's own coffee on, in my Keurig. I got a cup of that. I get a couple of Alzi bites, you know, from Costco. Take a couple of those. I go out in my backyard. I didn't think, my, my husband and I, we, we were downsizing and then we got a grandson. So what do we do? We go out and buy a 3,500 square foot house. Oh, I love it. Yeah. But that being said, we, I go out in the backyard. I can see, I live in, in, in Arizona. I can see this mountain range in the back. You know, I've got the pool. I've got trees. You know, it is a desert, but we have our trees. The birds are there and we have rabbits that come by. And I just stand there in my truth, in my moment. It's my form of meditation and getting ready for the day. I did that this morning, getting ready for you guys. And just there, just not thinking about much of anything, but what was right in front of me. And then I take a deep breath in, I blow it out. And I go, let's knock this out of the park. <laughs> and then I go back in the house. And as my mother says, I piddle for a while. You know, I'm, I, you know, I start doing things until I had to come on, on, on this uh, podcast. But yeah, but... Other, you know, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately. I'm writing my book. I have a memoir uh, in its second draft. It's called From the Projects to Prosperity. Nice. This colored girl got into medical school. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. So I'm working on that. I have all these different projects, but because our routines have been disrupted, you make new routines. You guys have a new routine. You know? Yes, we do. Yeah. And, and that's the problem is people want it to go back to the way it was. There is no the way it was. Mm. Now it's how can I make what I have the best that it can be? 
And that's what I share, you know, the Googlers, I call them Googlers. You know, I told them, I said, you know, this is, this is your reality now. You're at home. You know, the schools may or may not be open and all that. Find time for yourself. We still need to have that. And, you know, find a spot in the house where you can be you, even if it's just in, in, in a room. Just say, mommy or daddy's just got to have their private time just for five, 10 minutes. When I started getting depressed, I lived in Washington State for uh, most of my, my working life. And it rains there, as you know, it's, it's the Pacific Northwest. And I was getting seasonal affective disorder. Mm. So what did I do? Someone said, you need to get into the sun. I took up running and I, and this is my midlife crisis too, because I was almost, I was in my fifties. I took up running. I took up skiing. I had a, uh, we called ourselves a Clairol cuties because we used to dye our hair, but we meet every week. And, and like I said, I just found things and I would call the nanny and say, my car's parked around the corner, but I'm change, I changed my clothes at the hospital. I'm going to go for a quick run so that the kids don't know that mommy's home yet. Because when, when I get home, you know, mommy, 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 mom. So I, I'd go for a run. Those endorphins would kick in. You know, I'd do a short run, come back, walk in, and then I'm in the presence. I'm in the present for my children. Whatever happened at the hospital is done. And now I'm with them. That's all I'm thinking about. They come, read me a story, you know, tell me this, whatever. I'm ready for them. Before I would go home and I would be in that because maybe a patient said something that I didn't like. Maybe, you know, cause I would get things like you, you stuck me three times to get an IV in. And I, you know, Sometimes I stick people one time, I've stuck somebody 12 times to get an IV in. It's the way it is. And I try not to let that get in my head. It can't stay there. It needs to go somewhere. So I would run to, to and, and, I, and I would call people names, <laughs> but it just made me feel better. Well, you're so talking to a couple of runners. Yeah, we get yes. I know, I know. So running is great for the mental health. Thank you yeah, so it's, much. It's been such a pleasure. We really, really appreciate your time. Takeaways, takeaways, takeaways. We've heard from you that your favorite section of our podcast is the takeaways. Thank you so much for that feedback. But before we get to the takeaways today, we wanted to ask you if you would please give us a five-star review. That way, more people will be able to find our podcast. Also, if you could subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify, you'll never miss a podcast episode if you subscribe. And please share our podcast with your friends. And now, the takeaways. Wow, uh, Maria, she said it. Awesome. Awesome. She described that interview. Yeah, so yeah. she's so wise and, and just like, what life experiences? So much to learn. Of course, we only do two uh, takeaways each. So you want to start with your first Sure. I mean, I think, I think this is one that I love. Um, and, you know, I didn't, we didn't get too much into it, but she, she said in her young life, she was very serious and that the, 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 the laughing, um, the laughter and the comedy came out later. I love, love, love how she uses humor um, to manage uh, obstacles and difficulties. I think you know, I, you and I were talking the other day and I, uh, Jim and I started laughing about something that was in the news. And I realized that it had been so long since I'd had a good belly laugh and how 
great it made me feel. So my first takeaway is so important. Laughter, laughter fixes so many things. It helps you deal with difficulties. It relaxes you. As she said, it burns calories. If you can think of what about a situation is funny or even talk about, you know, difficult things that happen to you in a funny way, it's, it's, it's so good for you. So my first takeaway is laughter. Yes. Yes. And that's what we kind of put, you know, forth for the whole show of being, you know, that we all need to use laughter more. It's really, Mm -hmm. really a valuable tool, especially when you're dealing with pressure Yeah, to be able to laugh at something and I would add that she actually worked at that. It wasn't, you know, she said it was inside her all along, but, but she allowed it to come out. So I think for me, that's, that's sort of the takeaway is like, you know, you can work at it. You can work at including humor in your life and laughter in your life. I can, Jim says I'm I'm too serious and he's right. Well, also I love that she said it doesn't have to be a joke, right? You know, it doesn't have to be a joke. I mean, you can, look at a little frog on the sidewalk with its little chest pumping. Mark and I were walking the other day and there were three little frogs on the sidewalk in front of us and they were just so cute and so funny. So it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a joke, just, just smiling and laughing. Uh, My first takeaway, I think her authenticity, you know, about being authentic. Um, You know, she got rid of her weave. She, she embraces her, you know, all that she is. She just says she is who she is. And I think if we did that, it's so freeing. It's so, um, it's so powerful. If you can, if you can really connect with your authenticity, but I think when, when one can be authentic, it's just, it's the best, best way to go, obviously. Yeah. The, the, I think the point is that when we're real uh, and we're honest and we're who we are, honestly, the, that can be hard because we want to we want to think of ourselves maybe or project something that maybe is better than we think we are, and and there's no freedom in that, and there's no joy, and there's not a lot of laughter. So yeah, she was she epitomized like this is who I am. Yeah, this is me, and love it or leave it. You know, this is and it's and obviously it it fills her with, you know, gratitude and she's able to relax and be more successful because of that. So I love, I love the, I love that point about being authentic. I think we talk about it a lot and maybe it's because the two of us, you know, we're working on it ourselves, <laughs> but you know, it's just, it's, 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 you know, like we don't have to, you don't have to project something. You can really be who you are. You figure it out and just be honest about it. Right. Okay. Yeah, All right. Absolutely. So my second was, uh, I could just hear my you know, my daddy in my ear, um, hard work. She, you know, she emphasized it during the interview. And also later we were not recording even more, just, you know, you, you have to work at it and you have to work hard and nobody's going to hand you something. Uh, and if you expect that you're going to be sorely disappointed that, you know, you have to, you have to work hard to achieve your goals. And I, you know, that's been the, the experience that I've lived, but it's always a good reminder that, you know, if, if, if you run into difficulty, you know, and you really want something, you just got to kind of move on through it and, and, and do the work that you need to do. Um, so I, I like that. Yeah. Nothing, nothing beats hard work really. Right. <laughs> um, and then my, my final one for her was just that she has absolutely mastered letting negativity go. Right. And when one is being authentic you, you're going to get 
you know, you're going to get naysayers because, yeah. oh, you know, I don't like her hair. Or I don't like this. Like I loved, what did she say? Somebody makes one comment about, you know, your smile or your this or your that. And then you're like derailed from where you were going right, when right. you're listening to the naysayers. So right. letting, as I said several times, letting that whatever negativity people throw at you, just letting it roll off your, your back, like water off a duck's back, you know, just, yeah, just I ignoring think- it. I think that's a great visualization, but you have to make the decision to do that. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I, I think you have to be aware, oh, that, that comment bothered me or that, that negative thing that that person said, that's not, that's not necessarily true. I've actually only even become aware, you know, in my fifties, like, oh, wait a minute. I, I'm so used to listening to people and believing them <laughs> that sometimes somebody right. says something to you and you go, wait, that's, I don't think that's true. You know, uh, it, I think some, I think for some of us, you know, we're, we're waiting to hear negative things, you know, we're expecting to be criticized or whatever. And so, so you have to, you have to visualize that duck. It's a great visualization, but you have to discover or be think ready about, for it. be ready for it. If you hear it and you feel that bad feeling like a negative, you want to turn around and go the other way, or you start worrying about your hair or your smile or your, or what you're doing, you know, you think, no, is that true? Nope, not true going to let that one go. So it's a, it's a, it's a deliberate choice. And I, I love that yeah. too about her. And, and she also emphasized that sometimes it's our own voices in our own heads <laughs> that are the naysayers. So just, you know, ignore your own negative voices, just right. say, okay, that's just normal for me to be negative about this because I'm new to it or something. So there, right. there was a lot there, there uh, many more takeaways, uh, but that's why you listen to the whole podcast, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> All right, right, sweet. Love you. Wonderful. Love you too. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This week's quote of the week comes from Dr. Lynette Charity. It's hard to be depressed when you are laughing. You don't have to tell jokes to laugh. Just focus on the little things that are funny in life. And there are plenty of them. You've been listening to the Champions Mojo podcast with host Kelly Palace and Maria Parker. Champions Mojo is produced by Cabra Media and a new episode debuts every Tuesday. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Follow Champions Mojo on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Champions Mojo.